presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today we begin a new series of studies on the book of Acts. It's a nine-week study, and I've entitled our study to the ends of the earth with the subtitle, Proclaiming the Gospel in the First Century. Uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and to cover all that in nine weeks is going to be quite a feat. So obviously we're not going to do a verse-by-verse analysis of the book. But we will be looking at uh, at really the high point. So let me just uh, make a couple of uh, comments to start with. And that is the, the book of Acts is, is Luke's record of the continuing work of Christ that he accomplished through his apostles and, and other ordinary believers as well as they sought to obey the final commission of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit the first century believers spread the gospel uh, beginning at Jerusalem, eventually all the way to the world's greatest metropolis at that time, and that, of course, was Rome. The book of Acts covers approximately 32 or 33 years. It begins around the year A.D. 30 and ends around 30, uh, I'm sorry, ends around 62 to 63 A.D. Among this blood-bought band of brothers and sisters. There were no leaders with a track record of success. They certainly had no technological devices for propagating the good news about the risen Christ. Uh, The prevailing pagan culture at that time was skeptical about their message. In fact, their efforts often were met with opposition and persecution, at times even leading to death. Yet, they persevered in their mission. Uh, Jesus' statement in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 both uh, contains both a promise and a purpose. Let me just read Acts chapter 1 verse 8 for you. And this is from the New International Version where Jesus says, "You, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the promised Holy Spirit would empower believers to bear witness to Christ, that is to testify as to what personally they had seen and heard and known of Him. And years later in a in a letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul would refer to followers of the Lord Jesus as ambassadors for Christ. Again, um, not determining policy, but saying, I'm here to represent the policy of the king. There's an interesting quote that I want to uh, read you from uh, uh, a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, 
where he writes this. The thing that struck me was the concern Luke had for the actual presentation of the Gospel. That is, for the early Christian preaching. His book is only 28 chapters long, but in those 28 chapters, he has included 19 sermons or formal addresses. Many by Paul, several by Peter, the longest of all by Stephen, the first martyr. In other words, the book is full of teaching. What this means is that the way the gospel spread in the first century and needs to spread again in our time is by the faithful preaching and teaching of the great truths of the Bible. There's nothing today's church needs so much as to rediscover the doctrine, spirit, and commitments of the early Christian community. And I close quote there. So my desire for us as a, as a group is that we can learn and we can be encouraged by uh, reading about our first century brothers and sisters. And, and as we do, that you and I can dedicate ourselves, perhaps rededicate ourselves to sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit in our neighborhoods and our cities and our nation and ultimately to the ends of the earth and all for God's glory. So, with that said, let's uh, let's uh, begin... To, well, I started to say let's turn to your notes, but let's not do that yet. Uh, one of the things that, that I emailed you was a couple of uh, a couple of maps and also another um, background information sheet on that I entitled Territory and Emperors of the Roman Empire from AD 14 until AD 117. Now of course the time frame that we're looking at fits right in that period from around AD 30 up to about uh, AD uh, 63, 62 or 63. And you'll notice on that sheet that uh, you can see how the Roman Empire expanded all around the Mediterranean during that time. This, sh- this should bring back for some of us mem- memories of our old uh, Western Civ uh, classes from many years ago. Uh, during during this particular time, the, the time frame that we're talking about, there were uh, four Roman emperors who... Uh, who Held that position. Now, of course, Caesar Augustus was the one who was uh, who was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, but that was uh, that was several years prior to that. Uh, it was Tiberius who reigned from AD 14 to 37. So this is just oh, say the first uh, uh, Tiberius was reigning during the oh, say about the first five years of uh, of what we're going to be talking about in the Book of Acts. Of course, this would have included the time of the public ministry of uh, of, of the Lord Jesus. Certainly, it will include the uh, it included the time of the day of Pentecost that we'll talk about not this week, but in our next session. And it also uh, was the time of uh, it included the time when uh, Saul of Tarsus was converted, and later came to be known as. Uh, as the Apostle Paul. It was also a time in uh, Caligula uh, who had a really nasty, uh, ungodly reputation reigned from uh, A.D. 37 to 41. uh, And 
I really can't find a lot um, related to the book of Acts that relates specifically to him. Now, I'm sure there probably are some things, and I'm just uh, and I just didn't find them. But certainly, uh, the next emperor, the third emperor during this particular period, was Claudius, who reigned from AD 41 to 54, and it was during that time that the, uh, uh, James was martyred. Uh, there was a great famine in Judea. In fact, remember one of the first. Uh, um, enterprises that Paul got involved in after uh, after he had come to know the Lord, several years after he had come to know the Lord, was to take uh, uh, monies uh, from the area of the uh, Gentile churches uh, to uh, to uh, to Judea and uh, to Jerusalem in particular in order to help. Uh, in this famine kind of situation. It's also the time of the first two missionary tours of, uh, of the Apostle Paul and the Jerusalem Council as well. Uh, Nero came to power in A.D. 54 and reigned through 68. Uh, certainly the book of Acts ends during that period of time, probably uh, around 62 or 63. Um, <clears throat> The the thing I think probably Nero is most uh, remembered for is the tremendous fire that took place in Rome, and it's said that he fiddled as Rome burned. And we know from our history books uh, for sure that that took place in July of 64. That is not mentioned at all by Luke. Um, and of course, when that fire happened, Nero blamed that on Christians and a great persecution uh, broke out among the uh, toward Christians uh, at that point. And of course, uh, there is nothing like that at the end of, uh, of the book of Acts uh, in Luke's writings. So we assume from that, and I think we can reasonably deduct from that, that uh, Luke's writings ends probably a year or two prior to the time of the, that great fire. But it was during that... that that particular time prior to the fire that uh, while Nero was emperor that Paul's uh, third missionary journey was uh, uh, took place uh, his imprisonment at Caesarea and his voyage his uh, yeah his voyage to Rome and his first imprisonment which uh, in which he was essentially under house arrest and that's the way we find uh, where we find Paul at the end of the book of Acts and of course it was during that house arrest that he wrote uh, his prison letters, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, after, the, uh, after the great fire of 64, and Luke says nothing about this, but we know historically that after the great fire of, uh, of A.D. 64 and the persecution against Christians uh, had broken out, Paul was rearrested, uh, so was Peter. They both wound up uh, being, uh, being martyred. Uh, and Paul's condition in prison at that time was significantly different from what uh, Luke describes at the end of the at, at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, in fact, it was uh, in in his second imprisonment when Paul wrote Second Timothy, and the uh, what he describes there is so very different from what he described in his. Uh, 
prison epistles that he wrote during the time of uh, of his first imprisonment. So that that sort of I hope that will kind of help tie in a little bit of what we might call secular history. Well, certainly with biblical history, uh, Luke himself, we know, was a... Uh, incidentally, Luke's name uh, it doesn't say anywhere in the book of Acts that uh, I, Luke, wrote this. It's, uh, it's, but it's been, uh, by tradition, it's been thought for centuries that he was the writer, and we'll look at some of the reasons for that uh, in, in, in just a few minutes. The other thing I want you to look at before we turn to our notes is that other little chart that I gave you and that's the one that's entitled Roman Roads and Christian Churches in the First Century. The map at the bottom shows by 70 AD and of course that's when uh, oh, the uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and everything was just burned to the ground. But uh, by that time you can just see the tremendous number of churches that had been established during that time. Now obviously we're not going to look at each and every one of these. We're going to look at some of them. But uh, it does give us an idea of how in a period of 40 years from A.D. 30 until A.D. 70 what what the what the church was able to do during that time empowered by the Spirit of God. The map at the top is a network of roads in the ancient Roman world. Um, and just just imagine uh, the relationship of having good roads to the establishment of churches in the first century. Now we know that the first churches were not uh, were not special buildings that were set up somewhere that people met in uh, in people's homes. Uh, they uh, when they had to hide, they would meet in caves or uh, graveyards or places like that. But the point is, is that the fact that there were roads, uh, good roads, made it easy for uh, for the apostles and for other believers as well to get around throughout the Roman Empire. And as they would go, they would share their faith, they would share their witness, and uh, and of course God would would honor that. One other thing that's not listed on here that that occurred to me afterward, and I would have um, I would. Have Put it on there if I'd thought of it before, and uh, and again, this is something from our old Western civilization classes, and that is remember the Pax Romana, the the Roman peace. Uh, one of the things that you discover if you just read through the Book of Acts, particularly uh, the latter half of the Book of Acts, you discover that the Romans. Uh, pretty well kept a tight rein on things as far as uh, dealing with any kind of uprisings, and uh, they just they didn't want any kind of problems going on. And so the Roman peace uh, that uh, that the army of Rome provided in conjunction with those good roads that uh, that that their construction folks had built uh, just really made it advantageous for getting the gospel out. Uh, I think of that passage in uh, in Galatians where it says, "In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, uh, made under the uh, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law." But the point is, in the fullness of time, isn't it interesting that all of this has taken place in this huge 
huge empire is in power and one of the things that they want to do, they're not concerned about Christianity at all, but they are concerned about communication throughout the entire empire. And of course they didn't have phones and telegraphs and things like that. And so they had to depend on uh, people taking the message somewhere. Uh, and they needed good roads in order to be able to do that, and the roads needed to be safe for people to travel. So again, you just see the the providence of God in action as all this is taking place. And you just think about with all the cultural creations that we have today, the the cell phone, the internet, television, all of these things, so that even where people are forbidden to even own a Bible, uh, it's possible to beam uh, radio waves and, and television waves behind the scenes so that they can hear the gospel. This is a time for us to be involved, not only in our neighborhoods, but in a uh, but in a worldwide outreach, seeking to uh, seeking to uh, uh, proclaim the gospel and uh, and 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 use our witness and use the resources that God has given us in order to reach other people for Christ. And after all, those are our marching orders. The Great Commission, is what that's what Christ told us to do as He got ready to leave. Uh, now, but we'll finally turn to our notes and we'll uh, just just look at a few things. And now, obviously, what we're doing today is we're just looking at uh, some background, really, for our study of the Book of Acts, which we will really get into into more detail in our uh, in our next session. Now we've said that traditionally the author is uh, Luke. That's a Greek name, and we know what his profession was because in Colossians chapter four, uh, Paul writes, "Luke, the beloved physician, greets you." So when Paul wrote his prison epistles from Rome in that first imprisonment, which is takes place at the end of the book of Acts, there were a number of people who were with him, and we'll talk about that later, but among those people who were with him was Luke, the physician. Uh, he certainly was a historian as well, and of course with his, with his uh, medical background, you can expect that Luke had a scientific mind. Certainly the gospel that bears his name, as well as the book of Acts, is written in a, uh, in a very high class, as it were, form of, uh, of Greek language. In fact, uh, let me just refer you to uh, uh, Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. Oh, and may I mention, while, uh, while you're, uh, some, some of you have your Bibles, but uh, it's going to be. It would really be advantageous in the in the weeks to come as we go through this uh, this these sessions on the Book of Acts for you to bring your Bible. Uh, I know that uh, very often uh, you've, some of you have gotten real accustomed to my putting. Uh, uh, text as well as notes on a sheet of paper and that way you don't have to flip back and forth and try to find things. But because we're going to be covering such a large volume of material,
material each time. Obviously, again, not verse by verse, but we will be looking at, at sections of Scripture. It would really be to your advantage to not only read the material ahead of time so you're familiar with it, but also bring your Bible with you so if you have a question about something that uh, that perhaps uh, I'm not, I had not planned to bring out, but you want to bring up to the group and say, well, well what about this situation? Why did they do this? It'll really be advantageous if, uh, if we all have our Bibles. For those of you who do have your Bible today, uh, look at Luke chapter 1, and notice uh, what we see here is Dr. Luke's methodology in writing his two documentaries. He said, uh, and this is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, the first few verses, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, what he's saying there is there are a number of people who have been writing about what Jesus did. We, we know that there are at least three others. That's Matthew, Mark, and John. Okay. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Now, what Luke is telling us here is that when he started to write his account, uh, in, in particular, and he's talking about the Gospel here, he said, what I did was I went to eyewitnesses. I, Luke is saying, I was not an eyewitness myself, but I talked to eyewitnesses. I didn't talk to people with hearsay. I talked to people who had been involved and who had seen and heard for themselves. They were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Notice that term, carefully investigated. He's saying, look, I not only talked with eyewitnesses, I not only talked with the apostles, and I not only talked with the women, but I carefully evaluated the things that they had to say. I compared the things that they had to say so that I could come up with what I believe is an accurate historical representation of, the, of, of what happened in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It said, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. In other words, uh, some people are writing this down. I'm doing some careful investigation by talking with eyewitnesses and people who have been involved from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so I'm writing that down. And notice he says, he says, I'm writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, some who is Theophilus? Well, some people say that uh, that this was some sort of perhaps high public official because this uh, term "most excellent" is uh, is an official uh, rank, and it's mentioned a couple of times in the Book of Acts near the uh, when it talks about Portius Festus, and uh, and I believe when it talks about uh, uh, Agrippa. Not a, I'm sorry, not Agrippa. He was a king. When it talks about Felix, uh, Felix. Felix and Festus both were were governors at one time or another, and uh, when Paul addresses them, he uses this this sort of terminology. So it may be that Theophilus was some sort of government official. Uh, 
who uh, certainly had an interest in the uh, in the gospel, perhaps, or it may be since you know Theos means God, and uh, Philios uh, is uh, is uh, love, brotherly love. So this it could be that it just means one who is loved by God or one who is a lover of God. It it could be a general term. I don't think we need to uh, we need to. Uh, draw pistols over something like this. Uh, All we need to know is that Luke wrote this. And he says, "I've, I've written this account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So, Certainly, Luke is a physician. He's also a historian, but he's also a missionary, and we discover that in uh, in his uh, in the book of Acts. And the way we discover that is during the time of the second missionary journey, and we won't take the time to go look at it right now. But as you read through the book of Acts, and you get to that point where the second Paul's second missionary journey takes place, what you discover is that in Luke's writings in book in Acts, he will say they did that Paul did this, and the, there were people with Paul, and he said they did so and so, and they did so and so, and all of a sudden they get to one point and then the very next sentence he says and we put out to sea so you contrast the they and the them with the we and the us and it's at those moments when Luke becomes part of the missionary team and so uh, so not only was he a physician and historian but he was also a missionary Again, it's probably written around A.D. 63, perhaps from Rome, but it certainly was prior to the time of the Neroian uh, persecution that, that broke out. It covers approximately 30 years, probably about 33 years, uh, from the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of Paul's first imprisonment, which was, uh, which was under, uh, when he was under house arrest. The purpose of his writing certainly is to give us a history of Christianity's beginning, uh, but also, and I think more so, to demonstrate to Theophilus, because he addresses this second document, the book of Acts, to the same person, uh, to show him how Christ's ministry continues through his people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It certainly has a strategic position in the Bible, that is, the book of Acts does, because it lies between the Gospels and the Epistles. Here are the way the churches were established. Here are the way the, thing, the things that were going on. They're described for us in the book of Acts. And then Paul and Peter and others write their letters and we, we learn more about what was going on in the churches. But the, uh, the book of Acts acts as a bridge or a link between the two, much as the book of Joshua acts as a bridge between the time of uh, coming out of the exodus and wandering in the wilderness and then going into the land and ultimately the monarchy being being established in the Old Testament. Uh, the easiest way to break down the book of Acts is either into three parts or two parts. If you break it down into three parts, uh, that would be, remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it said, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. 
That would be part one. That'd be uh, chapters one through seven. And then, and in Judea and Samaria, and those two are linked together because of the way the language is written. That would be chapters eight through twelve. And then to the ends of the earth. That's the rest of the world, particularly the Gentile world. And that would be the rest of the uh, the book, chapters thirteen through twenty-eight. So that would be one way to do it um, in a threefold kind of structure. Or you could break it down into two parts and say the first 12 verses really focus on the Apostle Peter, whereas the second half focuses on the uh, the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that, uh, that John's name is mentioned three times in the book of Acts, but every time his name is mentioned, it's mentioned only in conjunction with the uh, with the apostle Peter. All right, so that's the uh, that's the background, uh, a little bit of the background for that. Now, remember our subtitle is proclaiming the gospel in the first century. Now, what we want to be sure about, and we're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna review this probably every week that we get together, and that is we're gonna talk about what exactly is the gospel. We kind of throw that word around. What do we mean when we say they preach in the gospel? What is it? What is the gospel? Is the gospel God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, it may be true that God does love you, and it may be true that He has a wonderful plan for your life, but that's not the substance of the gospel. Is it true that uh, you say, well, the gospel is that Christ is going to come back and He's going to judge the world? Well, certainly that's true. But is that really what the gospel is all about? Well... Let's get a, let's get a, the, the word itself means good news, but uh, let's get a, uh, a definition from the Apostle Paul himself. And I put this in your notes in that left hand column on the first page of your notes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first eight verses. Paul writes this. And this is uh, when he wrote this. I think it was in the, as I recall, it was in the uh, it was in the uh, in the fifties uh, in that that decade. He says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. One of the things that we'll see is when, as we get to chapter 9 of the book of Acts and we talk about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, one of the things that happened to him is, of course, he was blinded on the way and he was taken, he was led into Damascus where he stayed a little while, not very long. But one of the first things that he did was to withdraw to a place called Arabia. And he was there for several years. And it was during that time, it's believed, and there's some verses in the book of Galatians that would lead us to believe this, that it was during that time that God really revealed himself and revealed uh, a lot of things about his word to the uh, to the apostle to the uh, what now was the apostle paul so he says i delivered to you as a first importance what i also received all right here it is 
Pay attention now. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now what's the proof of that? What do you do with dead people? You buried them. The proof that He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures is that He was buried. Alright. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what's the proof that He was raised? Yes, that's right. The proof is He was seen by uh, a number of people. It says, and that He appeared to Cephas. Cephas, of course, is Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name. Peter is the... uh, uh, the Greek name and his Hebrew name is Simon or Simeon, which means hearing, and sometimes he didn't hear as well as he ought to. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The twelve is a uh, is just a term that means that original group of disciples. Now, obviously, were there twelve now? No, there were not. There were eleven. But they're still called the twelve because that's the group. Uh, for example, if uh, for those of us who like war movies, you remember the Dirty Dozen? A uh, dozen guys who sneak in behind enemy lines to do some dastardly things to the uh, to the Nazis. Uh, you know when those guys started, uh, some of those guys started getting killed. It didn't. It didn't. The Dirty Dozen didn't become the Dirty Ten or the Dirty Nine, and now they're the Dirty Eight. No, they were still the Dirty Dozen. Uh, same way with this, like the Magnificent Seven. One or two of them get shot. It's not the Magnificent Five anymore. Uh, from now on, no, it's still the Magnificent Seven. Uh, but that's what that word twelve means. Those original even though at the time there were only 11. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Boy, that, that takes away the, uh, the, the thought of some that uh, people were having a hallucination. Let me tell you, if you're going to have a hallucination, generally there has got to be an expectation about something. And you, you begin to expect it so much that you begin to hallucinate that, that, it's, that it's happening. Well, <clears throat> when Jesus was, died on that cross and they put him in the tomb, how many of those disciples were expecting to see him three days later? That's right. None of them were. There was no expectation. It was all over. In fact, they were just afraid they were going to be next on some other cross somewhere. So, uh, so, but in this case, you've got 500 people, all of whom did not have a hallucination, but they saw the Lord Jesus. He appeared to a bunch of them at one time. Most, and notice the next phrase that Paul says, writes, most of whom are still alive. What's, what's the inference? If you don't believe it, ask them. They were there. Paul says, look, I mean, at the time this is written, this is about 20 years removed, 20, 25 years removed from the time when the event of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection occurred. So there are a lot of people who are still alive at this point. And they say, hey, if you don't believe me, ask these people. He says, some of them have fallen asleep. That is, there are some who have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. So, what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was raised from the dead 
according to the Scriptures. And we have not communicated the, the Gospel unless we make that point to people. We need to talk about the substitutionary death and the subsequent resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ if we're going to really share the Gospel. Uh, People can argue with us about doctrine and things like that, but one of the things that Je- one the thing that Jesus said in Acts chapter one verse eight is, "You will be my witnesses." He didn't say you'll be my theologians. He didn't say you're going to all be teachers. He said you'll be witnesses. What what is what is it that a witness does? A witness simply tells what he has seen and heard, what he knows firsthand. Before we get through with our uh, uh, our Bible. Bible studies uh, in this particular series, I'm going to give you an opportunity, I'll ask you to do it, and I I hope you will because it will really be beneficial, and that is to write out your testimony. It's a simple thing about, here's, here's the way my life was going before I met Christ, and here's here's how I met Christ. Now, I doubt any of us are going to describe some sort of Damascus Road experience. There may be some of us who've had one of those, but for most of us, it doesn't happen that way. But but how was it that we came to to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And then, having come to know Him, how is it that our life has changed? And how is it changing, continuing to change now, as we are transformed? Formed into the image of His Son. See, the advantage, you say, well, I don't need to do that. I can kind of shoot from the hip. Well, that's true. We can all shoot from the hip. But there are times when, you know, people will approach us and say, you know, I've, I've been keeping an eye on you. I know, you're sort of an odd person anyway. And uh, somebody told me that you're a, you're a Christian. And uh, I, I just wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that, that you seem to be a little bit different from anybody else. See, if you've taken the time just to think through your testimony and not memorize it or do anything like that, but I mean just think through it and say, okay, there there are three things that I want to communicate, and that is what my life was like before, how it is that I met Christ, and how His His death and resurrection has impacted me, and then how my life has changed. And in sharing that, see, what am I doing? I'm not preaching. I'm not giving a theological logical discussion. I'm just simply bearing witness to what's happened in my life. And if God's pleased to use that to bring someone to Himself, that's God's business. You know, I heard an old preacher many, many years ago say that successful witnessing is sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Let me tell you, it's, it's God who brings folks to Himself. He just uses us as His errand boy and Aaron girls. Certainly Jesus uh, had taught and, and preached and talked about the kingdom of God uh, for, me, for those three or three and a half years. And during that last evening before His crucifixion, He spent a good bit of time talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now remember again, the key verse for the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses. The purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God is to empower people to do what? Not to work miracles, but to be witnesses. 
That's the purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God. All right, now, so I want us to, we won't have time to look at all of it, but let's look at uh, a couple of things here in, uh, it's in the right-hand column of uh, page 1 of your notes from John chapter 14. This is, uh, uh, Jesus is in the upper room with His disciples. It's that last evening. And He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I'm going to the Father. My goodness gracious. Well, Jesus raised the dead. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He preached. He did all kinds of things like that. And yet, this says He's going to do greater works than these. What in the world is that? What's greater than that? Well, maybe greater here doesn't necessarily mean greater in terms of the number of them. Or maybe even greater in terms of how spectacular things are uh, from a sense of miraculous. But maybe the greater has to do with greater scope. There's a greater scope. After all, remember, uh, Jesus, while He's 100% God, was also 100% man. And He was limited to being in one place at one time. Now, obviously, He could speak the Word and somebody 50 miles away could be healed or uh, freed from a demon or whatever else. There was, there was no limitation as far as that was concerned, uh, as far as the Lord Jesus is concerned. But He could only be in one place at one time. But when the Spirit of God comes, the Spirit of God will be in each of God's people. And those people can be scattered all over the place. And the impact of the, the, the Spirit of God working through the people of God using the Word of God attesting to the Word of God can have such a tremendous global impact just so much greater in scope. I I really think that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. He talks about the fact, whatever you ask in My name, this I'll do. in other words, just ask me, and I'm gonna. Uh, I, I will. I will. He's not saying here if you need, if you want a Mercedes or you want a, these other things. He's talking about in conjunction with ministering to other people and this greater scope. Just, just ask me, and I will. I will do all of this. He goes on to say, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you want to know how much you love Jesus, ask yourself how much do you obey him. He says, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Notice, Jesus is going to the Father, but he's, He says, in fact, the last in the last verse there, uh, 14 that I've got in your notes, verse 18 of John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. How will He come to us? He'll come to us in the person of the Spirit of God. Notice He says, I'm going to give you another Helper who will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot, not will not, but cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. He's dwelt with you. He's going to be in you. In inside of you. Uh, and the great thing about that is that the Bible tells us in Romans the, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's this subjective testimony that we that we have within from the Spirit of God who constantly is reminding us of our relationship with Him. But 
the real reason for the, the coming of the Spirit of God into our lives is to provide us power. Power to be able to witness, to share our faith with other people, to be bold in what we have to say uh, to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, another helper. The word helper is the word parakletos. Para, which means a lot, P-A-R-A, which means alongside, like a paralegal or a paramedic. Uh, Parakletos, the, the 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 verb kletos, uh, well, it's from the verb form kletos, which means to call. So this helper literally is one who is called alongside. So he's been with you. He's going to be in you. But notice he also said this. He said it's another helper. So Jesus said, I've been your helper. I've been the one who's called alongside you. But this is another helper. And in this case, there are two Greek words that are translated by our one English word, another. One of those words, one of those Greek words is the word heteros. We get our word heterosexual, for example, from that. A heterosexual is a person who is attracted to someone of the opposite sex. So uh, if he said, uh, I'm going to give you a heteros helper, it would be another of a different kind. But that's not what Jesus said. He used a different word. He used the word alos, A-L-L-O-S. And it means, it does mean another, but it means another not of a different kind, but another of exactly the same kind that I am. So he said, this: the Spirit of God is going to be another helper. He's going to be a helper to you. He's going to be one who comes alongside and he's just exactly exactly like I am. So it's going to be somebody with whom you're going to feel very comfortable. He goes on to say in John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The Spirit of God always bears witness about Christ. And then He says in verse 27, And you also will bear witness... See, what, again, what's the purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God? You'll receive power. Why? So that you can be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, our Jerusalem is where we live. And then uh, our Judea and Samaria are the, the communities and the outlying communities beyond us. And then there's the uttermost part of the world and uh, where we can exert some kind of influence. If, if we don't go personally, uh, we can certainly utilize our resources. We can... <clears throat> We can pray. There are a number of things that we can do to help uh, uh, to get the gospel out to all of these places. He says, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And again, I want to uh, reiterate, you know, a witness, a witness in a courtroom can only tell what he or she personally knows, experiences, has seen and has heard. If, you know, if I start trying to say, well, now... Um, let me, you know, I'm I'm been sworn in. I'm sitting in the witness chair in court, and I said, "Well, well, let me tell you what Karen said, or let me tell you what John said." Uh, he said, "Well, no, we're not interested in you telling us what Karen and John said. We're interested in what you know." 
What did you see? What did you hear? What did you personally experience? And see, that's what the Spirit of God enables us to do. And that's one of the reasons that it's a good idea for us to think about what is happening in our lives and how God has changed us and, uh, and think through that in such a way so that when somebody somewhere along the line asks us what's going on, that we can give them a reasonable response. We don't have to stammer through things. We say, yeah, here's, well, you're right, and here's the way my life was, and here's how Christ came into my life, and here's, uh, and, and, I, and I have changed. And, uh, and very often, you'd be surprised how many people uh, can come to know the Lord just through a very simple testimony, a personal testimony. And in fact, if any of you are interested, there's some little, there's a little diagram of when I, uh, very often when I share my testimony, there's a little diagram that I like to draw out. It's called the bridge illustration. And I'd be glad to share that with any of you who are interested in, uh, in seeing it. And it's a it's a great way to uh, to visually uh, demonstrate uh, what Christ has done uh, in some sort of little graphical form, but it also is something that you can uh, uh, you know write some verses on and things like that. So if a, uh, you can leave it with a person and they can review it later. And uh, I know when um, uh, many many years ago when a when a, a boss that I had at the time. Um, asked me about my relationship with the Lord, and of course I just gave him a stock answer. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I mean, I you know I grew up in church, and but I was as lost as a ball in high grass, and just didn't realize it. And I remember him giving me a little gospel track, just something to put in my hand, and I you know brought it home and shoved it away. And uh, it was uh, many many months later when I was really struggling with some things that I that I started looking for that little gospel tract. I was just trying to read some things. I had put it inside a Bible. And uh, boy, I had really gotten desperate because now I was trying to find something in the Bible. And I ran across that little gospel tract and it explained the the, the gospel uh, just step by step. And uh, that was what God used to bring me to Himself and begin the real change in my life. And I will uh, I will praise Him forever. And I'm grateful to, uh, to my uh, former boss who is now with the Lord and uh, for for his giving me that that was uh, that was that was very precious uh, notice in John 16 Jesus even says it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away the helper won't come and, and notice uh, again the advantage is that the Spirit of God can be everywhere at one time. Whereas Jesus was limited in because of His humanity, He could be only in one place at one time. Now, below that double rule are, uh, are three passages that in from the Gospel, from uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, in which uh, it's just uh, various... Uh, 
renditions of the Great Commission, uh, we'll look at Matthew chapter 28 where in verse 18 Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, let's look. Uh, let's in our in our few minutes that we have left. Let's just look at a, a couple of things here in these first few verses of the of the book of Acts, and because uh, some of this stuff we've we've already talked about. Just I've already talked about just uh, in in the course of trying to introduce the book to you. Acts chapter one. Um, Essentially, in these first few verses, he reiterates the purpose of his writing to this person, uh, Theophilus. and he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, and the first book would refer to what? That's right, to Luke's Gospel. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through His Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. From the time of His resurrection until the time of His ascension, 40 days passed. Now, it's going to be 10 more days before the day of Pentecost comes, and that's when the Spirit of God will be poured out. And while, verse 4, and while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't you guys... In fact, there were there were more than just 11 then. We discovered there were 120. We'll see that next time. But don't scatter. Don't go back to the house. Just stay right here. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that was a promise. They were just simply to wait. It wasn't, there was nothing they had to seek. There was nothing they had to do. All they had to do was just hang around Jerusalem for these next ten days. And... Uh, and what was going to happen was going to happen. Now there, there are three things that uh, that the apostles really, apparently, really needed, and Luke talks about that in these verses. First of all, they needed the assurance that Jesus was alive, and of course, the way Jesus provided that was by all of these post-resurrection appearances over a period of forty days, and not just to one here and one there, but sometimes even to uh, to large groups. A second thing they needed was some instruction, and of course, Jesus had done some. Of that, I mean, you, you think about at the end of Luke's first uh, writing, the Gospel, where you've got those two individuals who are on the road to Emmaus, and all of a sudden they're joined by this uh, person. They they don't have a clue who he is, and he talks about, uh, and he talks. Uh, they're saying, uh, well, this person asked them. Of course, it's the Lord Jesus whose identity is hidden from them, and he asked them, well, well what are you, what are you guys talking about? He said, well, where, man. Where have you been? Hadn't you heard about all the stuff that's been going on? We and we we thought that he was the he was the prophet who was to come. 
And Jesus begins to instruct them out of the Old Testament. And just show you, can you imagine what that road trip must have been like? And then, of course, when they stop at the inn and they're going to have dinner, uh, when Jesus uh, uh, takes the bread to bless to bless it, all of a sudden He vanishes out of their sight. But there were a number of things like that. Remember Jesus on the shoreline with seven of the disciples up around Galilee, and He was He was teaching them. Uh, things at the time. So um, they needed assurance that Jesus was alive. Luke talks about that. They needed instruction. But the third thing they needed is what we're going to be talking about. And that is they needed empowerment. Uh, The Spirit of God has been with them but He needs to be in them. And it's going to be a few days before that happens. You guys need to hang around Jerusalem. Don't be going off anywhere. So when they had come, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked Him, notice what's on the disciples' minds. Good grief, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice, they're thinking nationalistically. They're, they're thinking, they're, they've got questions about the kingdom of Israel. Is it time yet to get rid of the hobnail sandals of these Romans and really we come to the forefront uh, the way we're supposed to be? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father's fixed by His own authority. In other words, I, I'm not going to send you into the world to predict the future. That that you know, It's okay to talk about end times and that's interesting to talk about. But that's not the real purpose. I'm sending you into the world. Why I'm sending you into the world. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words... It's not a matter of talking about the kingdom of Israel and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but we're talking about the kingdom of God, and it's a spiritual kingdom um, in nature. Remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate? Ah, I understand you're a king. Well, where did you hear that? Well, are you a king? Do, do, he says, and Jesus said, My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting for me right now. But my kingdom is not from this world. So he's talking about the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. And it's not just limited to an ethnic group there in Israel. It's going to be international in membership. It's going to start in Jerusalem, but it's going to spread to Judea. And then Samaria, where all those old half-breeds are. And then it's going to go out to the Gentiles, to the entire world. What a tremendous experience. And it's going to be gradual as it expands. Although remember, in a matter of... 30 plus years this the gospel had gone from where its original roots were in Jerusalem all the way to the major metropolis of the world and that is to Rome and when they had said these things as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white robe well don't know whether they were men, but they looked like men, apparently. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus, notice, not, not someone else, not some representative, but this Jesus, this very one, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is a, this is a, the ascension was really important for a number of reasons, and one of those reasons is it gave some closure. I know closure is a popular word today, but it's a, it's a good one to use here. It gave closure to the disciples. After all, you know, there were times during those 40 days of appearances that Jesus made uh, after His resurrection where all of a sudden He would just appear in the room and then He would disappear. And then, you know, He appeared to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus and went into the inn to have, have dinner with them. And then all of a sudden just disappeared from their sight. Well, if Jesus had just simply disappeared, they said, well, I wonder what time He's going to be back. Wonder when he's coming back. I bet he'll be. I bet he'll be back in time uh, for the weekend when we have that meeting. No, 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 no. It says. Notice it, the the terminology that's used in verse nine. It says he was lifted up. I mean, these folks are are watching right there, and there was no just vanishing, you know, poof out of sight. He was lifted up. He was lifted up, and it says a cloud took him out of this sight. Now, whether this is some sort of nimbo or cumulus cloud or whatever, I doubt it was probably some some heavenly kind of thing. Perhaps it was a, a cloud of uh, of angels. I I just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I guess it's it's best not to speculate. And then it says in verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. So the the appearances are over and Jesus' personal presence now is gone. But he says, but remember, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Stay in Jerusalem and the one who has been with you, the Spirit of God who's been with you, He will be in you after that period of time. Certainly, uh, the fact that he went up as well, I think, was probably a picture of his exaltation, and it's a it's a reminder that Jesus, at this point, has entered into a new phase of ministry. Remember, he had his public ministry. Uh, he was here, and then he suffered and died and was resurrected, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where the Scriptures tell us he lives forever to make intercession for us. He is our great uh, high priest. And that's what he's doing now. And then it tells us in verse 12 and following that they obeyed. They went to Jerusalem uh, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. That's about three quarters of a mile or so. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. This is probably the same upper room where uh, they had met with Jesus for the, uh, the Last Supper. And then it gives all of their names. And um, I, I think it's interesting that that you've got uh, that when you just look at this crowd, you've got Matthew, who was a uh, who was essentially a Roman. He was a Jew, but he was a Roman bureaucrat. He collected taxes for Rome. And then you've got a guy named Simon the Zealot, and the Zealots were ready to cut the throats of any Roman they found anywhere. So here you've got a bureaucrat 
a Roman bureaucrat and a zealot here in the same in the same group. But see, that's one of the things that uh, that God does when He saves us is uh, is He gives us a sense of of unity. He brings us together, and they're they're all there for the same reason. They're united in their purpose. They are persevering in their prayer. Well, let's uh, let's let's wind it up. Let me point you to the conclusion, uh, and I'll just uh, read it. Maybe make a couple of comments. Uh, Luke's purpose in writing was to give witness to the resurrected, exalted Christ and His continuing work through His people as they are empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Certainly, His resurrection affirms His claims to deity more than once Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And in Romans 1.4, it says He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness the the message of the early church should be the same as our should be our message the message of the early church was clear it was unambiguous it was a call to repentance and faith in the crucified resurrected Christ Jesus and his finished work and all according to scripture Christ commissioned to his people to go into all the world and preach the gospel is missional it's not political we're we're not to go, we're not to impose christianity on a nation we're not to impose christianity on a world jesus is he is the great judge he's going to he's going to do any imposing that needs to be done remember the disciples expectations were of the establishment of a uh, geographically and ethnically restricted kingdom uh, and and Jesus had already told them, "Hey, my my kingdom's not of this world." But the answer that Jesus gave is a missional answer, not a political answer. That that is a missional answer. That is is related to his whole purpose in sending the Spirit of God, and that is that you and I are to confront our culture as ambassadors for Christ with the claims of Christ by means of our lives as well as by means of our lips. We are to confront our culture, not be conformed to our culture. God's kingdom has no geographical boundaries. God's kingdom has no ethnic boundaries. But we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be uh, faithful witnesses. And our witness is based on a life that's been transformed by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And our witness should begin where we live, in our home, in our office, in our community, in the social circles in which we function, and ultimately extend throughout the entire world. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.